I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Carl Duhoffman, he's the brand manager in the Northeast for Anchor Spirits, and also he's a partner in Orchard Hill Cider Mill. Hello, sir. How are you? Doing very well. How are you doing today? Nice to see you. Thank you. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in and around New York City. My family uh, was located in the Lower East Side. That's where my father uh, grew up. My mother grew up on the Upper East Side, and then Soon after I was born, and my parents were pretty young. They met on the subway. <laughs> exactly. Actually, they met at the Ethical Cultural Center, Central Park West, you know, in the 60s. Super hippie. It was the first time they'd ever been on the West Side? I weather. think so. They both got their uh, visas, you know, stamped on the way across town. And uh, they were, you know, at some kind of happening, full-on super 60s vibe, I guess. And uh, yeah, it was a big love story. And then I was born pretty young. In 1969, so it was, New York was a very different place than it is now. And uh, they moved out of the city when I was about two years old because I was almost kidnapped in the subway. My mother was carrying me in Union Square Station, and some guy popped me out of her arms and took off like I was a football. And uh, my father was a subway cop at the time, so they actually did catch the guy and retrieve me in time. So that. I, and I'm a little resentful because I might be, you know, the child of some, you know, multi-billionaire at this point, you know? Yeah, it could have been like... It could have uh, been a real career move for me. I don't know. <laughs> but um, th so they moved upstate, uh, not too far, about an hour and a half on the uh, Delaware River, called a town called Port Jervis. And that's where I grew up until I was about 15. And I came back to New York City to pursue a theatrical career because I was working as a young actor. In what way? Well, at the, I was really a dancer. I grew up dancing. I was a tap dancer. The theatrical That's pretty kind. awesome. Yeah, it was fun. It when was, I look at that, it seems hard to me. Like, it is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I had great teachers growing up. I was kind of blessed because I, um, in this small podunk backwater town, there happened to be a guy who had retired who was an old vaudevillian and worked in Hollywood. He had actually, this guy had actually known a relative of mine who worked in Hollywood. And that's how it was kind of serendipitous meeting between my father and him that led to me learning to dance at a young age from the time I was like, Four years old, I took tap dance lessons with a really great master teacher. When I was a teenager, I happened upon getting an agent. I started doing commercials, coming into New York City, and 
before you know it, I was making enough money to tell my parents that uh, I was just going to go to New York City and pursue this full time. You know, I went to a private school, moved into the city. I was a sophomore in high school. Second quarter, half of my sophomore year, I moved out, came to New York City and uh, lived here and was working as an actor full time from then until, you know, when I was mid about 35 when I was started this career. So you like being on stage. Yeah, you know, I do. I like, you know, what I do is I like the process and I like the community. You know, I like the dancing part a lot. I miss it as a matter of fact, but I like the community that's involved in that. And I think it's very similar to the restaurant and the service industry, that kind of, you know, you show up at four o'clock, you have your meal, you know, you have your pre-shift and then it's showtime and you, you're talking to people and the community and the process of maintaining that high level through till the time you close is, is very, I think it's very similar. Kind of brings you through a little bit. It does. It does. It's, it's a, it's that, I don't know. I, I like the hours are the same, you know, the evening hours. I don't, you don't, you don't show up first thing in the morning. I never work back at the house. So you're not there at 6 a.m. Uh, and then, you know, there's that whole process and the community of setup and making sure that you maintain the illusion of everything that sang froid. Everything is perfect, even when it's not. And figuring out ways to keep, keep the show and the, the illusion of that everything is working perfectly and that the story that you're telling as a theatrical person, that's the same as in a restaurant. You know, you have a story that's being told, you have your food, you have your service, you have your wine, your rolls, and no matter what happens, you got to stay in that, stay, keep that story, that through line going. And so I like that part of it. And I find that true to be in the case in what I do now as well. The educational aspect, talking to people, solving problems, making sure that the customer service element of going to a store or a restaurant and taking care of your products and your customers who are buying your products and then turning around and doing the same thing to their customers, buying your products and then selling it on through to the next customer. So it's very much, it's, it's the same kind of thing, kind of telling that story, keeping the process going, keeping the through line happening. You're trying to build some excitement. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, I feel that all the products that I work on, whether it's the cider or whether it's, you know, Glenn Rothis or Luxardo or any of the products from Anchor, it's all about that. Yeah. Telling that story and getting the through line and, and getting the message through to the end person. Because ultimately you can sell it, but you can't have the other person sell it for you. You need them to sell it. Correct. I need to, I need to engage them on an imaginative level so that they're as excited about the story of the product and the use of the product that they can then turn around and communicate that through to people who don't know about these things and may have no idea what they are or how they're used or how they fit into the overall cultural landscape of food and beverage. Does that imply that people aren't necessarily always asking for craft products that someone has to kind of bring it to them? Yeah, I think there's a lot of discovery involved in all of these things. It's, it's, um, and I think that's the excitement about it. I think it's what people get excited about. They walk into a place that has a bar that looks different than a national chain. You know, you can walk into a TGI Fridays and you can walk into a Morton Steakhouse. And if the bar looks the same, there's to me a, a problem. It's a letdown. You know, when you walk into a New York City restaurant, a high-end place where the chef is, has a, th a thumbprint, you know, a kind of uh, a signature of what he's doing, that storyline that they're trying to tell should be clear on the wine list. It should be clear on the bar. It should be clear on the coffee service. Every, every element should be in line with that story. And 
you know, a lot of what people look for when they go out to eat is not just sustenance. It's, it's excitement. It's discovery. It's also a sense of fulfillment. I think there's a fundamental thing when you sit down at a restaurant, you're in this powerless state. You want to have, you know, a very fundamental need be satiated, you know, and you want the people that are there to, to do that. And when that person can deliver something of that they've never heard of, something that is superior or unique, it really does make a difference to the whole overall experience. So how did you get involved with restaurants? Well, I also got married pretty young, um, about 26. So I had kids soon thereafter. So when you're working as an actor, there are always peaks and valleys. There are always time in between when you're not working. And a lot of times I could have sat down on, uh, you know, collected unemployment, but I wasn't single. So I really didn't have that opportunity. It wasn't a choice. So I'd close a Broadway show and I'd need another paycheck right away. And so the restaurants are always, for most people, most, the more flexible option. Also an option that plays to the strengths. And as we just discussed before, it's a similar kind of undertaking. And uh, the money is good in the restaurants. You can, if you're in a good restaurant, you have a good job, you can support your family. So without a doubt, I, I always went back to the restaurants between shows. And I had a number of places and relationships where I could, you know, be gone for a year or two and then come back and I'd, I'd get a job again and make good money. And I found it a rewarding experience, actually. A lot of people, when they're actors, complain about working in restaurants. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm really an actor. And I always kind of took the exact opposite approach. It's like, I'd go to a table, they'd say, oh, well, what do you do when you're not here? I'm like, I live my life. I'm like, oh, but are you, a, are you an actor? I'm like, no, I'm a waiter. Really? You're a waiter? That's right. I'm a professional waiter because this is a great, you know, this is an opportunity to get an education and you're working with world-class chefs. And to me, I always took that part of my job as seriously as my theatrical career. And I made sure that I could learn as much as possible when I was there. From the guys in the kitchen, I would try to learn about every kind of everything on the menu in an intimate way, understand how it was made, you know, even be able to try to make it at home so I could really pull it apart. And that was the same with the beverages. Like when I learned about wine and, and spirits, you know, it led to a hobby of, of working at home where I would, I'd love to learn how to make wine. So I should do that as a hobby. Let's buy some grapes and try to make some wine at home. Whether it turned out well or not was not the point. It was just sort of the experience and learning pitfalls. And, you know, most of what I made was not good. You know, but the experience of doing it gave me more confidence to ask questions when winemakers would come to the restaurants or, you know, when brand guys or the sommelier would talk about someplace that he'd been. And I could, I could ask questions from people who knew a lot more than I did. And that really helped me learn a lot. So it was a very rewarding experience. So again, sort of falling in love with the process. Yeah, I think that's really the key. The process and the, and the, and the community, you know, because even when I was at home making wine, I never did it by myself. I was like, the first, the first time, a couple of times I did, I did it with my dad because whenever we spoke about politics, we'd get in big fights. So I wanted to spend time with my dad, but I didn't want to talk about politics. So have an activity that could... We could focus our communal time around like making something. It's uh, it makes the situation more real and more valuable. It's funny because that's an acting thing, you know. Actors always talk about, you know, if you look at a great actor working on stage, oftentimes they there's a 
standard idea of what helps a good actor be real on stage, which is having an activity. Because if you're just standing there talking your lines, it's not real. But if you have an activity to occupy yourself while you interact with your fellow actor, it, it brings things to life. So it's funny. It's, it's very much what, why I started doing these things at home as part of that, having time to do things with my father and, and kind of creating this experience. So where did the restaurant thing take you? Well, it was interesting. I was um, on tour doing a show, and I took that opportunity to learn all about the different distilleries that were going on around the, uh, America. So I visited Clear Creek in Portland. I visited uh, St. George Spirits in Oakland. What decade is this? I mean, when was this? Around early 2000s. So that's kind of early in that game. Yep. So there wasn't a lot of these small craft guys out there yet. There were just a handful of these pioneers like Anchor, you know, and I visited these places. And I didn't get to see the stills at Anchor because they don't, didn't take people down there. But, um, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to Joseph McCarthy and Lance Winters at Clear Creek and uh, St. George, respectively. And, you know, just checked out what they were doing. And uh, I took a, took a class given by a stillmaker at a uh, agricultural extension in Missouri at the university there. It was just a, a week-long seminar on distilling. Um, and w- one of my friends on the tour, her husband was traveling around with us, and he was interested in what I was doing and saying, look, I think when I go back to New York, I want to get out of the theater business and get into starting this small distillery, distilling apples, because New York State is one of the great terroirs for apples in the world more diverse apple varieties are grown here uh, than anywhere else in the country. And there's a lot of them. So I thought having traveled in Europe before, I had really felt that one of the things that were missing in the United States was that small producer ethos that you can find in uh, Southern France or Northern France or Italy, Germany, where you have these small distillers and small vintners who are, adding something of value to their crop and creating something unique. And that's not driven by a marketing company. But so that was my plan to come back and start something. And um, it was a focused on apples because of New York state being an apple state. So that's, that's what basically kind of this career in the restaurant and this interest in the process and the creativity of, of that whole community led me to kind of getting to that point where maybe theater was not fulfilling it really anymore because of the inc- inconsistency of the career opportunities. And then also I'd been doing it for a long time. Since I was 15 to 35, 35. 20 odd years, I'd been doing it. I'd had good success, but not the kind of success that would you know, convince me to commit the next 20 years of my life to it. <laughs> and so it was a pretty exciting time to come back to New York I went back into the restaurant business and started working on this project with the apples. But at the same time, I feel like you kind of got tapped to do sales and distribution. Yeah, it was, um, it was a unique opportunity because I'd been working at, uh, we'd opened a restaurant called Cheska in New York City with Tom Valenti. And uh, the sommelier there, Patrick Bickford, you know, he'd been a pretty well-known sommelier and he'd also worked in the distribution industry as well. And after we both had left Cheska, I was working at Telepan with Aaron Von Rock and uh, Bill Telepan. And Patrick Bickford was now working for the distributor, Winebow, and he was coming into the restaurant. 
And he kept seeing all the different uh, distillations I was bringing from my activities upstate. Been ma- I'd made Amari, I'd made, tried to make gin a number of times, terribly, terrible outcomes, but I'd made some apple brandy. And so they were looking for someone at Winebow to help sell spirits as their craft portfolio started, was starting to, to grow. And uh, Patrick Bickford recommended me. He said, you know, called me, would you be interested in being a brand manager at Winebow for spirits? I said, sure, that sounds really good. What the hell is that? <laughs> you know, I had no idea what it was, but it was a good opportunity. I mean, how many spirits portfolios were there outside of the really large distributors? I think there were, you know, there, Winebow's was one that was starting to really come together at something special because of the price portfolio, Anchor's portfolio. So price sounds like you're talking about how much it costs, but it's actually the name of a, a portfolio. Yeah, that's right. Basically, the, the company that's become Anchor Distilling now was a, a, an agglomeration of a, a portfolio run by a gentleman named Henry Price and then the Anchor Distilling portfolio and then Barry Brothers and Rudd's portfolio. But back then, this was about eight, nine years ago, Henry Price had his portfolio, which was centered around some whiskeys of note, like Springbank, uh, Benriac, Hirsch, uh, and then Luxardo liqueurs, which at that time still were not enormous, but not like they are now, but certainly were respected. And then we also had uh, Delma Gay Mezcal. So we had some real gems that were in need of more attention from the predominantly wine house. So that's what they brought me in. I, I guess they recommended me basically because I was distilling and obviously working in the restaurants. This is the typical springboard into this kind of distribution job is either you work at a retailer selling wine or or you work in a restaurant. So it wasn't an unusual place to look, I think. But um, not having had any sales experience, the uh, I think Scott Talon, who runs the spirits at Winebow, he was pretty... Uh, he, he had to do some convincing to say, hey, here, there is this Broadway dancer who's distilling on the weekends. That's the guy we should we should hire. And I think they had actually hired someone who had like years experience and they didn't work out. And then they came back around to me. So it was it was the only other portfolios that were focused, I think, on small products like that at the time. I think Victor Schwartz had some some nice spirits. And then. Some of the other wine houses, they had things that were more associated with wine. So they had some, maybe some cremes, maybe an Armagnac, a Calvados, and that's kind of it. They didn't, they certainly weren't focused on whiskeys or, or liqueurs or other things that would really fall outside of the purview of a, of a sommelier's point of view, because their, their customer who they called on were the sommeliers. So if, if the bartender bought it, they didn't focus on it is what, how I think they looked at it. And that was the change that started to happen at Winebow was that because the spirits offerings were starting to diversify and things like Delmage Mezcal, which was something that sommeliers were starting to drink. It wasn't just the bartenders. It was like, hey, you know, the chef likes wants some of this and the sommelier wants to drink it after work. So their their attention was being diverted to these less classical, like uh, I would say kind of commodity spirits and more uh, of a premium spirit that was selling on the same kind of thing that wine would be, fine wine would be sold on, you know, terroir and producer differentiation rather than branding and sort of my spirit's better than your spirit because we're more, we look better in a Ferrari, 
you know, kind of thing. And some of those price points were kind of high, too, for some of those products that you were selling. Well, that's right. And then I think that's part of the issue as well, because the the terroir-driven, story-driven, small producer-driven products would not fit in a traditional spirits house because the pricing model was more akin to a fine wine, something that people were paying a bigger chunk of money for it because of what it was and where it came from. Something unique. They'll pay more for something unique. Right. Whereas with the big model houses, the the driver and the price driver was the advertising. So you'd advertise and people would know about it. So they'd say, oh yeah, I need to have Grey Goose or I need to have Johnny Walker because I saw the ads and that's the name I know. I don't even know what it is. I don't have no idea how to drink it, but it's the one thing I know. Absolute. I know absolute. So I'll drink absolute. What is absolute? Oh, it's vodka. I think it's vodka, right? Well, yeah. So what is vodka? I have no idea, but I'm going to drink it, you know? And so, whereas these things were like, driven by knowledge and story and terroir and like it's mezcal oh it's not only this mezcal it's mezcal from this place it's whiskey from this place with this guy who makes it so it's a totally different model for understanding and sales and so but it was also happening with right about the time of a generational change right because i feel like there was all of these 20 30 year branded drinkers who had been drinking you know doers for two decades and who only drank doers that's what they drank or Johnny Walker or something else. And now you had younger people coming up, maybe a little more open and saying, oh, well, what else is out there? And you had these two things happening at the same time so that that branded drinker would get upset if the classic item was not available to them because something else was new. Whereas that younger person or that more adventurous person would be excited about the same phenomena. Right. Well, and it is, it is very much a generational thing. I think people tend to reject what the people, the generation directly in front of them drank. They see that, you know, middle-aged, sweaty guy in a suit drinking it, and they're like, I don't want to be that guy. You know, my dad drank that, and, you know, I have bad associations with it, so I want to drink something different. And you're right, this kind of fight over who gets to kind of paint the picture or tell the story at the bar is very interesting, because when the older person walks in and says, I want to bud light and the restaurant says we don't serve bud light and they go well why not it's a rejection of their whole generation it's a rejection of their worldview it's a rejection of what they're about you know and the young person feels the same way like hey this place really gets me because look at all these cool things they have i've never heard of this brewery i want to try that i want to try this and so and i guess it boils down it boils down to What's the story you're telling at the restaurant and who are your customers? Who, who are you going to serve? And, you know, unfortunately, as people get older, they tend to get set in their ways. You know, they start to uh, fall into some pretty unique habits that don't help a good restaurant be a good restaurant. You know, a good restaurant is only as good as its customers. And if you are constantly taking care of the people who are fighting over wh- whether you have their brand or not, who are insistent that you split all split all the you know the food even if it's unsplittable send shit back to rigor because that's how you can tell they know how to behave in a restaurant is when they say you know take this back it's not prepared the way I like it you know because it that's not how the guy where I come from cooks this this you said it was going to be this and it looks totally different than I expected and so that scares me and so I'm going to send it back and then that 
throws a kink into the kitchen and messes up the service for everyone else. And so if you, you know, if you basically pander to that kind of behavior in your restaurant, it will slowly destroy your restaurant for if you, if you have a high-minded restaurant. So it is, it is definitely an interesting dilemma for restaurateurs who are trying to, to, trying to do something that, you know, as I said, differentiates them and is something that's unique and high-minded. Sometimes, you know, you have to have the customer base to, that gets it and you have to take good care of them. And I think having products like we talked about with this kind of terroir-driven, you know, differentiation fits in with that kind of thing. It does tend to speak to a certain level of education, understanding, and more often than not, a little more youthfulness because of that open-mindedness and looking for something new rather than looking to have their worldview basically affirmed by the restaurant. But not just throwing a kink into what's available on the back bar, but I had to throw a kink into the whole distribution and production of spirits because that customer who drinks the same thing for two decades, that's a very predictable consumer trend. You can produce to that and you can distribute to that. But people who are always wanting to try something new, that's not a predictable you have no idea what they're going to want to try next, really, like from the producer and distributor side. So, I mean, one, obviously, that side exploded in the next 10 to 15 years from where you are talking about. And then two, it seems like a lot of that has to do with the unknown in terms of distribution and production, like what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think for the for the big companies, which tend to be less nimble and which tend to spend a lot of money on a project to launch it, this kind of in unpredictability as well as lack of brand loyalty creates huge problems for these big companies. It's very hard to be super nimble when you have big projects that you're launching that you want to be scalable and you want to you know, go the world over and are built on low cost, high margin and, and big spends to kind of push it through to the point where it gets established as a brand. It's, it's hard, you know, there's, a, there's that change that's going on. For many generations, beer was Budweiser and, you know, whiskey was, as you said, Dewar's or Johnny Walker. And, and as that changes, you're right. I think the, the model for what a successful company looks like is, is changing. And I, I think that's what Anchor Distilling is trying to do, is be that company that can take the brands that are not those big household brands that have these terroir-driven stories and these people-driven stories, producer-driven stories, to market in an organized, rational way and help companies figure it out because we're, you know, we're more nimble, we're smaller, and, and we have an educational model where we, we talk to these points instead of just saying price-to-value ratio, it's terroir, it's who it is and why it's, what's the points of differentiation from all the other things that, you know, why is, why is this spirit es essential on your back bar? You know, when you're talking, I've had people, you know, as Luxardo Maraschino becomes a, a real juggernaut in the, in the market where people are really discovering it that never knew what it was. And it was funny because it was one of those liqueurs that you always had on every bar. You know, and when I was selling it at Winebow, you know, eight, nine years ago, I would go to a bar, not in New York City, and I'd say, oh, you have Luxardo Maraschino, and the bartender would go, would, what's that? Oh, that bottle over there. And they'd go, oh, yeah, I don't know what this is. 
And I'd go, have you ever tasted it? No, it's too sweet for me. I don't think I'd like it. Like, if you haven't tasted it, how do you know it's too sweet for you? You know, it's because it's such a funky, rich liqueur. And I'd have them try it and they'd be like, wow, this is actually really good. I'm like, yeah, I think <laughs> it's funny. But now it's gotten really big and it's everywhere. And kind of restaurants that are used to shaking down big companies for, you know, the chain sort of, you know, local regional chains that feel like they can go to a big company and say, well, I need my menus printed by you. Otherwise, I won't carry your product have come to me and said, oh, you know, we really we really like this Luxardo Maraschino when we want to work with it. I'm like, oh, excellent. Well, can you um, get us this printed? No, I can't. <laughs> well, what about, you know, if we bought this much of it, can you do something for them? I'm like, no, I can't. You know, go find another Maraschino. There isn't one. And if there is, it's not the same. So I can't do anything for you. And it's, you know, it's that kind of disconnect that starts to happen as, as these things get bigger and, you know, you try to explain to this person who's trying to shake you down, like, look, dude, the reason this is great is because it's really great and it's not reproducible. And let me tell you, if you have it on your bar, it makes your bar look better. That's the reason to have it, not because I'm going to print your menus, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a new world for these guys. Was there sometimes a challenge to get things that were more base spirits, like a high-end scotch, a high-end mezcal? you know, high quality product that was unique, like you said, to get those into cocktails because of the price points. Because sometimes I feel like the temptation for bar owners and bartenders is to use the less expensive branded product because then they, you know, they can make more margin on a cocktail by using less expensive gin or vodka or whiskey, that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it has been and continues to be to a certain degree. I mean, there are certain places that pride themselves on using better ingredients and then there's sort of a a standard high profile high high end price point you know in, at least in new york where it's like if you can get around a dollar an ounce or a little bit above then you can at least be in contention and clearly if you're going to get one of those spirits into a cocktail it has to be close to that price or it has to offer some really huge point of differentiation for the bar owners, sort of like the maraschino, even if it's a base spirit, sometimes it's just quality of taste, and then sometimes it's the story. You know, obviously, right now, one really standout example on our portfolio at Anchor is Nika Coffee Grain. It's a Japanese whiskey, and it is really struck a note, and it's hugely popular. And even though it's way over a dollar an ounce wholesale to the restaurant, it's closer to two dollars an ounce. Many, many people seem to want to use it. I've also had the same experience with Orchard Hill, the cider. We have 1066, the pomo that we make. You know, we're one of the few producers in the country that have produced one. And ours is between five and 10 years in, in the barrel. So it's got some age on it, which is unusual even for French pomo. And it's probably hard for people to just replicate that just because they want to. Like that's a certain amount of time that would take to get to market. Exactly. And even for us, it's something that we're constantly worried about. Do we have enough in the pipeline behind this to take care of our situation? And because of that, we actually put it in small bottles, half bottles, and we put it at a pretty high price point to make sure that we didn't have holes. We'd rather kind of dribble it out to people who really get it until our pipeline is kind of rationalized for the future. And because it's kind of compelling flavor profile and story, we've had many people using it in cocktails 
uh, which is great. And we're excited about it when, you know, high-end places are using it in a cocktail. It's perfect for us. But it is kind of surprising because it does go against that rather standard dollar an ounce, a little bit above, okay. But, you know, it's it's a $50 half bottle retail. So, you know, wholesale stuff, about 30 bucks for a half bottle. So it's, it's closer to $2, over $2 an ounce. So you've seen the unique spirits world turn into the unique cocktail world. People are looking for unique ingredients. Yeah, they are. And it's, it's, they are and they aren't. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a story of two cities. I would say a tale of two cities on that front. Because certainly there are people who want those higher-end products, um, their products, into a cocktail scene. Um, but the pricing is too high for standardized. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't catch on... You know, you can't really go to people and say, you have to put this in a cocktail when it's a lot more expensive than their typical price point would be. So, but people fall in love with things, you know, they fall in love with the gin, they fall in love with the whiskey, they fall in love with the cognac. And even though it's, it's higher price point, they feel it tells the story, they feel it adds that value to them. And so then they start using it. And I think it's unpredictable about when that happens and when it doesn't happen, but it's certainly happening. Did you see the beginning or nascent trends at Winebow that later became huge? Did you see things moving in a direction that suddenly just sort of exploded later on in subsequent years? Yeah, I would say the the big ones were obviously, you know, Mezcal. I think Mezcal from Del Maguey was a huge trend that when I started, it was really very, very small, kind of unknown but highly regarded product that has, over the last 10 years, Mezcal has exploded. There's, there's an ocean of brands out there doing high-quality stuff and delivering different, different maguey from different regions of Mezcal, with different producers and different styles. And so that, I, that was a trend. And obviously, you know, Phil Ward and, and Maya Well and, and the work that Steve Olson did on that um, and these guys, and that's, that was... I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. That was a big one. I think the explosion of American whiskey was a trend that at Winebow, you know, when I got there, bourbons were, they were, they were doing okay. But then as it just took off and over the last 10 years, it's been off the hook, crazy. More and more producers coming online, bourbon, rye, the revival of rye at the time, you know, people couldn't sell rye, but not long before my time at Winebow Rye, there wasn't any rye available. I mean, one of the things it was funny, one of the things at Tuttletown, when I started distilling up there, that was when I was at Telepan, I was distilling my brandy at Tuttletown Distillery. They had just gotten their license. And they would just let us ferment our juice there and give us the keys for the weekend and we distill the apple brandy. And they were their business model, they were gonna sell vodka. They were making vodka from apples. And they thought that was a great idea. And and it will, I'll tell you, conversations I had with them, and you know, they were thinking maybe we should do whiskey instead. And and I was like, yeah, I hear there's a rye shortage. You know, <laughs> no one seems to have any, and people are looking for it now. And so, it's a interesting. That was that was definitely a big thing, and that's now led to producers who are doing an ocean of different styles of whiskey from unusual grains, heritage grains, different mash bills, different barrel finishing. And now I think the, the trend that's probably the next one on the horizon is these American malts. Balcones was successful and, and really high quality. Westland is really poised, I think, to become, and we represent that at Anchor. It's 
it's a, an amazing project with them doing uh, work with local barley growers, a local maltster. They bought their own peat bog with peat going back 60,000 years, 60,000 year old peat that they're going to be using to do some projects. It's crazy. So I think that kind of stuff, that's a trend that has really, really changed and accelerated since I was at Winebow. And then obviously the cocktail trend at the time, Luxardo was really starting to get, you know, become an object of cult fascination for bartenders and the revival of these pre-prohibition cocktails, classic drinks has really just accelerated and things that were happening in New York then, which were really novel, you're starting to see out, you know, and flyover country all across America where people are discovering Luxardo, people are discovering chartreuse, people are discovering how, you know, these drinks, uh, old recipes and, you know, you see Negronis and last words and these kinds of cocktails and well-executed old fashioned or a real daiquiri on cocktail drinks, lists in hotels and, and, re and good restaurants all across the country. So, and, and I think that was not the case then. So I think I would say those are the big trends. What affects a trend? I mean, besides the fact that it's what it is, what affects someone to purchase gin versus vodka versus whiskey versus rum? I mean, is it the same thing? Is it a different thing per category? Is it some sort of cultural movement? Is it just trying to be different than the parents? I mean, why do why would someone pick a gin instead of a vodka, you know, besides just what goes into that product as a product? I, I mean, I think it's all those things you kind of just mentioned. I think people do tend to turn away from what was the trend before when trends get ridiculous, um, when the vodka martini gets to that point where it's overpriced, you know, sickly sweet with pucker and whatever else. And, and, and it's no longer bears any resemblance to a martini. People look at that and go, okay, why am I paying top dollar for this ridiculousness? And I think, you know, even with some of the whiskey stuff now, some of these cults of Pappy Van Winkle and this very high flying prices probably ripe for people to go, why am I paying for all this? I, I can get beautifully aged Calvados for a lot cheaper maybe that's a better value and maybe that's more exciting and maybe it's time to start looking at that. And then I think also it's, you know, a zeitgeist thing. I think the influencers, people like yourself, you know, running a program at a fine restaurant or a good bar start to say, you know what, I'm not going to pander to this ridiculous trend anymore. There's a world of new stuff and I need to differentiate my restaurant from all these other places. And so rather than stocking, 25 flavored vodkas, I'm going to get rid of all of them. And if someone asks for, you know, Stolio, I'm going to say, sorry, we just don't have it. And it's, we're not going to get it. No, it's not happening. This is what we have. We have great drinks. And as that kind of rebellion starts to spread amongst the influencers and the better restaurants and the better bars, people see the wisdom of not playing into that foolishness and it, and it slowly starts to change. And then also, I think the big companies that benefit from these trends and who help drive them tend to get greedy and they start to push out more and more ridiculous things and people start to feel foolish about it and they look for an alternative and the nimble younger people who are maybe working for more of a, a passion can, can find that entree. And then I think the other thing that really helped change everything in the United States was a change in the legal structure. You know, if you look at the craft beer movement, that was enabled by 
legal changes. Then the distillery movement, again, legal structures were changed to allow that. And some of that's driven by individuals like Ralph from Tuttletown. Ralph would, went to New York State and said, hey, look, I'm trying to start a business and employ people upstate New York where no one's got a job. And this law is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Let's change it. And people listen and they change it. You know, that's happening with the cider mill right now. People are starting to discover ciders. And a lot of what we're doing at the cider mill couldn't have been done 20 years ago because of the legal environment was set up to protect whatever big business had set up those laws. A lot of it was actually designed, like we had issues around alcohol level in our cider. So if you have a, a real cider and you're harvesting fresh fruit and you ferment it out, good quality fruit will often go above 7% alcohol. But the legal structure in the United States was that once it went over 7% alcohol, it wasn't considered cider anymore. So there was an artificial barrier that was designed to basically allows people who made commercial industrial style ciders to sell their ciders into grocery and gas stations and these kinds of things. And, and uh, there was this barrier because of the distribution model of where, how beer and cider was sold versus how wine was sold. Cause you couldn't sell in New York, you couldn't sell, you can't sell wine in a grocery store. So this kind this artificial barrier, legal regime kept good cider from being made. You couldn't do it, right? And if you did do it, you didn't have a route to market. And if you did have a route to market, it was overtaxed because you were treated like a champagne, which is you know taxed at a luxury level as opposed to just like a regular wine. So all these legal changes that were you know, recently made by Go Governor Cuomo and rationalizing this stuff enables all of a sudden 65 cider mills to be opening in, in New York State. And once, when you go into a store or a restaurant, if you see a list of whiskey that's one whiskey, then you say, this is not a whiskey place. Why am I going to drink whiskey here? I'll drink what they do. So I think it's the same at the liquor store, and I think it's the same in the, in the market. If there's 65 reputable, high-quality producers of cider, that's a category that people might start to pay attention to. When there's one guy in the wilderness, you know, you're the one guy in the wilderness. And I would liken it to Bonnie Dune and the Roan Rangers, right? If you look at what they did, you know, they changed the whole wine industry because they said, look, I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing. I want to do what I want to do. And then when there was one of them that was good, when there was two or three of them, when it hit a certain mass, a critical mass, people pay attention. And they go, hey, this is a Pinot Noir from Willamette Valley really matters. We should go check it out, Right. And, you know, the Rhone Rangers, they really matter. And I think that's what happens with all these things. As, as, it, as you walk into a store and you see a whole selection of serious producers of whatever it may be, you stop and you look. When it's one guy, it's like crying in the wilderness. It doesn't really, uh, it's only the people that are really paying attention that learn about it. And the term of critical mass and that evolution is craft spirits where craft beer used to be and is cider craft cider where craft spirits used to be in terms of sales and and getting out there in the market i mean has craft beer really just exploded and craft spirits are filling the niche of where craft beer was you know 10 years ago you know i i mean in certain ways yes whether it's it's certainly i think it's a, a good analogy um i don't know if the numbers are at the same spots as far as sales because obviously craft spirits are a lot more money. 
and so they have less market penetration. And a lot of the craft spirit producers that are successful are producing whiskeys, which take a lot longer to get to market. It's a little harder of a regime than, you know, beer. You you could do a bunch of different styles of beer. You know, you do a couple, you know, X number of barrels of that style. If it works, great. If not, just move on. You know, if you're going to do a style of whiskey and then lay it down, even for a very short time compared to a beer, it's like a year in the barrel, two years in a barrel, which isn't a long time for a whiskey. Uh, you know, if you say, oh, my whiskey's a year old, people will say to you, oh, well, that's a young whiskey. You know, if you say my beer's a year old, that's a stale beer. You got to flush down the toilet. So it's a little different. But yeah, I would say yes. And then I think cider, I think cider is definitely at that sort of early nascent stage of where craft beer maybe was maybe in the 70s, right? It's going to take a long time. And not unlike distilleries, there's a lot of work to be done to get the cider industry to be a mature industry. You know, trees need to be planted because there's a lot of apples here, but we need more of the high tannin varieties, the bitters and the bitter sharps, bitter sweets, so that we can get um, a higher quality cider in the long term. Which are not eating apples, and so maybe they haven't been around as much. Right. There's, there's virtually none of them planted. And, you know, the, the challenge that we face is convincing the growers to commit to these apples. Convincing them that the cider producers are here to stay, and that in the long run, they can produce apples that will get a better price. Because right now, a lot of the apples are grown, end up in mots or, you know, applesauce and you know, they're not even all eating apples, right? And the, when they get commoditized out like that, they're not getting a high rate of return for all the effort and time that goes into growing a tree and caring for a tree and harvesting those apples and making sure they get to, to market. So um, that's some of the work we're doing now at the New York Cider Association is sort of laying the legal groundwork and getting the support of the state to you know, get us some metrics and get us some you know financing to help promote this concept because um, you know if you, if you talk to um, some of the guys from Cornell and that have been around here a long time in the Apple industry much longer than I have, they really feel that New York State could be could be you know, one of the best apple cider producing regions in the world because of the climate, because of the terroir. Um, because of the variety of terroirs between the Hudson Valley up until the, the Finger Lakes and, and, and then up into the um, Niagara Escarpment up there, there's a lot of uh, variability that can allow for the growth of a lot of different styles of uh, apples and that that variability will, could create something very special. Is there a cultural X factor to why things sell that really can't be predicted like you know, if Sex in the City features Cosmopolitans, all of a sudden vodka sales skyrocket. If Mad Men features bourbon, all of a sudden, if you happen to be making bourbon, you're extraordinarily happy. But that's hard to know before it happens. I guess. It is. It is. I mean, I think I think what happens is those those TV shows and those kind of style tastemakers that happen. I don't think they happen in a vacuum. I think people look at what's happening. They look at what's you know. I think if you if you look at the small communities in the cities that where people are people are running a restaurant or a bar that really kind of sets a standard i think people see that and that's what kind of stimulates the imagination to then go out and create those 
things. I, I don't think that the fact that Cosmos were being drunk on Sex in the City was an accident. It was something that, you know, existed, you know, and that had a style to it. You know, something that was part of a revival, like, you know, the Dale the Groffs bringing back these kind of classic cocktails and serving them with style at the Rainbow Room and, and at the, you know, Windows in the World. And that's kinds of that influence and started to trickle out. And I think people see that and then that becomes part of their, they're like, I want to tell my story and this is fits in with it, you know? And I think that's what then leads to this stuff. And even all the cocktails, like in the drinking culture being so part of Mad Men, I don't know, but is it an accident that, you know, that happened soon after the whole revival of, you know, speakeasies and classic cocktail culture and all that? I mean, it's such a part of Mad Men's storytelling that, that drinking culture. So it's hard to imagine it without it, but the fact that it was already in revival all around New York and San Francisco and that it was already there. I mean, is it accidental that then it becomes such a big part of that story? I, I don't know. I find that hard to believe, but, but yeah, it's just how those trends get picked up and then popularized, you know, farm to table food, celebrity chefs. I mean, those things existed, right? And then now the TV has picked it up and amplified that message so that it's, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But yeah, there's that Hollywood myth-making at work, and it's hard to always tell what's going what's gonna to catch on, you know, and there's, it's an indispensable part of, of the business, you know. So how long were you at Wine Bowl? Five years. And then I left to go start the spirits program at Martin Scott Wines. Martin Scott was um, a very high-end wine house. You know, they specialized in Burgundies and some of the best wines in the world were distributed through them, including things like Domaine de Romani Conti and on and on and on. So they, Marty Gold and Scott, were very interested in diversifying into these craft spirits. Just like I had said, the route to market had changed and the buyers of wines and fine wines were now people who were selecting fine wines and spirits. And it was part of their strategy to expand into that world. And so I went over there and I basically built out a program and recruited brands and, and trained all of the, uh, the wine salesmen to basically extend their vocabulary and their way of talking about wines over into the spirits. And it was very successful. It was a great, I was only there for a year. Uh, basically, it was funny because I had, um, Anchor Distilling was starting to form. And uh, as I was leaving Winebow, I'd been selling all those brands and I said to them, look, I'm going to be leaving, you know, and I really love to work for Anchor if you guys are interested. They're like, oh, no, we couldn't take you away from Winebow. You're very valuable to us there. I'm like, well, I'm leaving. <laughs> like, I'm leaving. I'm not going to be here. And they're like, oh, okay, well, well, we don't have anything for you right now. So I went to Martin Scott very happily, and I really got settled in, and uh, things were going great. We had a great year. Everything was, like, growing, and we hit our targets which i rolled out and then we put like a three-year plan in place and then anchor called you know at the end of the year and we're like hey we got a job for you now and it was a really good job and the company is so special and the what they're planning to do was so really up my alley um so it was a hard decision but i i left after a year and the, the martin scott program really continued to grow and succeed so i'm very proud of it 
um, and the people who, who are there, you know, running it now, are doing a great job. And the brands are, are, are very successful. Some of them are, you know, I remember telling, talking to one brand, uh, Breckenridge Bourbon, and I was trying to get this bourbon for our market. And they were like, well, we think we, you know, we're looking at big spirits companies. I'm like, that's a mistake. I'll, you know, I'll kill it with this brand. They're like, how much can you sell? And I was like, Every, pretty soon, I would say within a year or two, all the whiskey you think you have that you can't sell will be sold. And you will be telling me that you don't have enough whiskey for how much I want to order. And they're like, no way. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. I said, and if it doesn't happen, you should leave. And, you know, that's what happened. They, and then we can't take all the credit for it. As we discussed, this whiskey boom is happening. But, you know, we re- they really killed it with, that, with those brands. And uh, Smooth Ambler and Balcones and Corsair, Breckenridge were all brands that were part of that program and have done exceedingly well at Martin Scott and then and nationally. So they're, I think you would call them fixtures of the whiskey landscape now. And, uh, and then I went on to Anchor, and I've been there ever since, about four years. Does that imply that there's more competition amongst distributors to get some of these brands that are going to blow up into their portfolios? Or are there more players now and, and more people knocking on craft producers' doors saying, hey, you know, we could make this happen for you. We understand other people can make this happen for you too, but we'd like to be that person. I think so. I think so. I mean, I think, I think if you look at the different players who've put in small spirits, you know, craft divisions, everyone from even Southern Wine and Spirits, which is not a small company, has put together a craft division where they have a craft manager and they have a whole crew of people that are focused, especially trained to help sell those things. And then you go down the size of distribution channels. You obviously wine boats bigger than ever. They've now bought Martin Scott and been and merged with another company. So they're probably two to three times bigger than when I was there. And then if you look at, the the smaller wine houses, the fine wine houses that are still independent, like Skernick has now has a, a specialty craft spirits division, and then you look at the beer houses as well, Blueprint Brands and uh, Manhattan Beer and Union Beer. All these guys have spirits divisions now that are giving a route to market for these small producers, and so there is definite competition, and you know a good distributor is paying attention to making sure that. Their portfolio is well-rounded, that it, they, they don't have so many brands in one category that they can't pay attention and, and take care of those brands because they'll just leave. And that happens all the time. People are like, you know what? I see this brand's doing great and I'm getting no attention, so I'm off to the, to the next guy, which is good. I think it's healthy for everyone involved, from the restaurants to the, to the producers themselves and also to the, to the distributors. It's, if you're leaving money on the table... And your customer, meaning your supplier, points that out to you by just going somewhere else and being successful. That means you've missed an opportunity and maybe you should have paid attention to it. So it's good. It's a nice, healthy, I think it's a healthy state of affairs. What's the landscape really look like now on the production side? I mean, is it a few multinational companies controlling a lot of brands and then just a mushrooming pack of small brands developing at the craft level? Or is there more in the middle than that? Is there a middle range? I think there's definitely middle range. I mean, there's a lot of sort of big independents, I call them. Similar, like if you look at uh, Kavalon, which we sell from Taiwan, 
It's a very well-financed project. It's owned by a company that produces like other things in Taiwan, like tea and coffee drinks and, you know, even dried shrimp. I mean, that's like a food kind of company. And then they own this distillery. So they have no other spirits play. As far as I know, they're not buying other spirits plays. They just wanted to make a really good Taiwanese whiskey. So I wouldn't consider them like a craft distiller in the sense of like, you know, Balcones or Corsair or even Anchor Distilling. But they're not a multinational conglomerate of spirits either, right? So there's those kinds of guys. There's places like Luxardo, which is not a small company, but it's a small family-run, you know, business. It's independent, you know, and then there's people who are coming to market that are buying spirits from suppliers. So like MGP, Midwestern Grain Products, which is a, uh, a contract distiller. They own one of the biggest and best bourbon distilleries in the country, but they don't, they've never l- released brands under their own labels. They, they provide whiskey to companies like, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know for sure who they provide whiskeys to because they're actually very quiet about it, but there's open secrets, this kind of well-known discussions and there's articles produced that say this whiskey comes from LDI, this whiskey comes from LDI, which is the MGP uh, whiskey distillery. So there's all these kind of independent brand owners that aren't part of multinational conglomerates that are buying whiskey from other producers. You know, Anchor is one of them. Like we have Hirsch Bourbon. Hirsch Bourbon has never owned a distillery, never was never associated with any one distillery. The original Hirsch Bourbon was distilled in Schaeferstown, Pennsylvania on contract not by the owners, not as a distillery label. And, you know, all throughout its history, it's been sourcing whiskey from distillers. And still to this day, it does. So there's brands like that that are in the marketplace that, again, don't fit the sort of classic idea of what is a craft distiller. Although recently there's been a huge controversy about that because some of these guys who are craft distillers or who claim to be craft distillers are buying their whiskey, right? So some of them are open about it, like High West and Smooth Ambler are both guys who, you know, bought whiskey from LDI and openly said, yep. Oh, I, I don't know if the Southern, Smooth Ambler doesn't say whether it's from LDI or not, but they have openly said, these bottlings are not our stuff. We bought it, we scouted it, we blended it, and we bottled it. You know, these bottlings are the ones we make at our distillery, you know, and they're open about it. And others have been less transparent and had stories that did not uh, pass the sniff test, as they say. And that's led to lawsuits and all kinds of controversy. So does Taiwanese whiskey and other categories like that imply that globally production has changed and moved to different areas? That now you can make whiskey in Scotland, you can make it in Ireland, you can make it in America, but you could also make it anywhere you want. Yes, it, it does. And it's, a, it's an increasing and growing category of spirits. I mean, if you look at the whiskey boom, um, where in this 19s, I would say as far back as the 1980s, you would have had Scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey, American whiskey, Irish whiskey, and that's pretty much it. Um, now you have a very credible distillers producing world-class whiskeys from all over, uh, India, Taiwan, Japan, which has been distilling for 90 years, those whiskeys are exploding in popularity the world over. 
There's obviously whiskeys being made in other places that haven't come to the United States. Some of them are called whiskey when they're not, like Indian whiskey. These guys, these whiskeys are predominantly molasses based. They're called. So that would be a rum. That would be a rum, but they're labeled as whiskey. Uh, and I, I would say maybe India's ripe for doing what happened with Japan. I mean, when the Japanese whiskey industry started, it was doing what India was doing now. They're, they were making rum or other some other kind of base spirit and flavoring it and calling it whiskey and selling it. And they knew it wasn't sustainable, which is why the whole launch of Japanese whiskey with Masataka Takatsuru going to Scotland and coming back to start Yamazaki and then start, you know, Nika and basically to start the whole Japanese whiskey industry. That, that trip was undertaken um, because the biggest producer of Japanese whiskey, which wasn't whiskey, knew that eventually someone would call him out. So he better get his act together. So he sent someone over to Scotland, Takatsuru, to learn how to make whiskey properly, come back and, and do that. And, and then the whole industry transformed over the last 90 years and has now become one of the most respected whiskey regions in the world. You know, and you think of people in India, you wonder if the climate isn't, isn't right for that same kind of change. And big companies like Diageo are betting that it is and that they can go into a place like India and sell Johnny Walker and Talisker and all the other malts into those markets because there's a whole, you know, and you look at this with cider, it's what all these cider producers are betting too. If people are out there drinking what they think is good whiskey and then you introduce them to really good whiskey, you know, will they adopt it and will the category go premium? Right now people are drinking a lot of cider. It's mostly commercial, industrial, frozen concentrate products. You know, you're not talking about fresh cider made with an idea to preserving its terroir and fermenting it out so that it tastes like a wine made from apples, which is what cider is. Instead, you're getting these commercial ciders that are frozen concentrates made to taste like apple juice with alcohol. You know, it's like the white Zinfandel stage of cider. And, and I think India is maybe at the same spot like that Japan was. Like, we, we know we like this stuff. We're drinking this cheap imitation is there enough of a middle class that's growing that wants to spend money and aspire to the good stuff? And are they ready for that? Does whiskey production in different parts of the world or any kind of spirits production in different parts of the world imply different production challenges? Like, is it different to make it in a different place? Yes. It, I mean, to a certain degree, it is for sure. Obviously, there's different traditions. But the production of whiskey is predominantly a very straightforward thing. You make a beer you distill it and then you age it in casks. And But the climate and the aging that undergoes in those climate will change things tremendously. Oh, so it's really about the aging and what kind of temperature it is. I think so. I think uh, the, the climate, like if you think about what happens in Scotland, it's a very cool place. There's not a wide fluctuation between very cold and very hot. But if you're producing whiskey in America you know, in Kentucky, say, or, or some other place, even in New York, right? There's wide fluctuations between very hot and, and, and cold. Um, and so that changes the, the nature of the aging. I mean, you, you don't get the age statements from Kentucky that you normally do from Scotland. And that's because the evaporation and, and the extraction of the flavors from the barrels, you know, changes the situation. Taiwan's a perfect example of that. You know, when they, for Kavalon first started producing, they did everything right. They, they, bought beautiful stills. They followed Scottish whiskey traditions to a T, you know, and within a couple, you know, very short period of time, 
they had a lot of whiskey that was sitting in a barrel that was over oak that was terrible because it's a subtropical climate and the so it's more like a rum producing climate um they were losing 10 percent a year to angel share they were using barrels that were not properly maybe it's hard to avoid that over extraction that dense uh tight grain of a, a properly air cured american oak um, and so they brought in Dr. Jim Swan, who's one of the best consultants in the world on for whiskey, but also on barrel aging. And he's he's the guy. And uh, you know, he all he did was tweak it. He didn't have to change tremendous. Like it's not like he invented reinvented the wheel. You just have to do tweaks. Like if you're fermenting in a in a super hot climate, maybe it's good to cool it down, right? So you get a cleaner fermentation. Because what happens naturally in Scotland isn't going to happen naturally in a subtropical climate. So you don't want to create flavors that then you have to take out later on. He found out that there was not enough of a condenser on the still and that some of the alcohol was actually not condensing. It was actually evaporating up. They were losing it coming out of the still. So they had to put in a whole nother condenser. So you get double the amount of copper contact. So all of these things combined to drive a very fruity, um, beautiful spirit. Um, which is, you know, important to then put into a barrel so that it reaches maturity before it all evaporates out of the barrel, before you re extract so many oak tannins that you're drinking an over-extracted, you know, cup of tea or licking a barrel. And I think in India and Sweden and wherever they're making whiskey now, that these decisions are being made by good whiskey makers so that they don't wind up with a slavish imitation of a whiskey made in a different climate, but a whiskey that takes advantage of where they are and, and takes that and turns it to their, to their advantage and makes a better whiskey. Indeed, a whiskey that you couldn't make, in, like Kavalon's sherry extracted whiskeys, they're getting extraction from Fino casks and Manzanilla casks because it's so hot in the warehouse. They're getting extractive flavors from those barrels that you couldn't get in Scotland. You wouldn't get it. So in some ways, you... People say, oh, is this made just like in Scotland? I'm like, yeah, but you couldn't make this in Scotland. Just like you can't make, you can't make Brooklady in Taiwan. It's even if all the process is virtually the same. And that's the beauty of it. When you look at the market, and I think that building a portfolio and then selling a portfolio has really given you a view on this. What are the advantages and disadvantages that the multinational conglomerates have and what are the advantages and disadvantages that the very small brand has in the market? Well, the multinationals, I think, have the advantage of being capitalized fully, of having access to sort of the best experts in the field. If something's not going right and they don't have the guy there, they can just bring him in. Um, they have control of the route to market. And so I think that's their advantage for sure. The disadvantage would be that, you know, being that well capitalized, they have huge demands on producing more capital and stumbling, you know, can really cause a lot of problems. Being so big, I think they are less inclined to be disruptive of the market because as the market gets disrupted, that affects their bottom line in a big way. And so they're not as nimble and they can't, um, they're not inclined necessarily to be innovative in a meaningful way. I think innovation in sort of extensions in ways that I think are less meaningful, like we're doing really well with 
lemon vodka, let's try peach vodka, let's try cinnamon vodka, coffee vodka, whatever else. Like doers is important and people like honey, so let's do honey doers. And people like honey doers. And it's like, is that innovation? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I don't think it really offers something new or exciting to the to the consumer or to the conversation of food and beverage culture. But I think then the small producers are sort of the inverse, really. I um, mean, even, even the independent small guys, obviously they can be more nimble. They can be more driven by trying to contribute in a meaningful way. But capital and access to the expertise uh, can sometimes be a challenge. I think it's hard when you're a small producer to get the answers to the questions you need and to get to get access to capital so that you know you're not scraping by even very wildly successful guys who are out there they need capital and you know once you give up your capital then you're beholden to the problems of the big guy right if you go and get capital give away equity then you have to answer to those money guys just like the big guys do and then your ability to be nimble and be innovative becomes more and more challenging because you, now you have to answer those dollars and cents. Have certain segments of the spirits industry emerged as investment categories? Do people maybe buy a bourbon or a scotch with the idea that they'll make money by reselling that item later? Absolutely. Is that a change? I don't remember that happening 15 years ago. Like, I don't remember people being like, this stoli, oh, I'm going to put this down in a cellar and then I'm going to sell it in five years. Yeah, I think what's happening is that um, the only reason it hasn't become bigger is because the regulatory environment needs change. There's no online accepted investment platform like there is for wine. I can't sell you a bottle of whiskey online and then ship it to you. It's illegal. Even just shipping a bottle of whiskey is illegal. There's lots of problems involved with it. So I think the only reason it hasn't gotten bigger than it is is because of that regulatory uh, hurdle. So I think that's an area that's ripe for disruption in the United States because there are people who are investing. Uh, I mean, when I was selling the old age or 16 at Winebow, um, you know, it was coming to an end of its life. There was not, no more whiskey left and it was considered one of the best whiskeys ever. And we were selling it out and people were buying it and starting to hoard it. And so, you know, all of a sudden prices started going up and, you know, I went to a store down in Princeton, New Jersey uh, or South New Jersey and I was walking through the store, selling them stuff and looking at their shelves. And they had like three or four bottles of Hirsch 16 for a third of the price that we were wholesaling it for. And I bought all of them. And the guy was like, oh man, I'm so glad to get rid of those bottles. They've been sitting here for like eight months forever and no one's bought them. I'm like, oh, well, do you have any more? He's like, no, no, that's it. I was like, well, I'm glad to take them off your hands. I kind of like this whiskey. You know, and when I went home and I said, showed my wife. I said, hey, look, I just bought these bottles of whiskey. She said, how much did it cost? And I told her, and she's like, what? And I was like, all right, calm down. It's my birthday. I'm going to keep one bottle. I'm going to open it for my birthday, drink it. I'm going to put the other bottle in the basement, and I'll sell this third bottle, and I'll come out hundreds of dollars ahead of what I've just spent. And she's like, are you kidding me? And that's what's happening. I mean, there are guys who are literally, you know, investing in rare whiskey bottles, scotch, rare uh, bourbon bottles, rare rye bottles. People are buying old uh, bottlings of chartreuse. People are buying old bottlings of, of mezcal. I mean, whatever, whatever kind of category as these um, important 
touchstone things become less replaceable because in the large part they're not you know you can't step into the same bottle of whiskey twice about 15 years following the spirits world for you what's going to happen in the next 10 years i mean what's going to happen next what do you see coming down the pike i think brandy is brandy's poised for a revival it's uh i don't think you can keep a great category like brandy down there's too much value there there's too much quality there then at, at this point, with the high prices in the whiskey world, I think it's just a matter of time before someone says, hey, wait a second, you know, I can get those old whiskeys that I used to get for X dollars that are now X times $4 or not available at all. I can't even find them. Oh, I can just walk down to the brandy aisle and get some really elevated quality producers at a better price. So I think that's big. I think people have been saying rum is going to be poised to take off. And I think it should. I hope it does. Whether it does or not, I don't know. But I think we're going to see a further fragmentation. I think that's really the trend that's probably most that seems to just be unavoidable. Where you see, you used to see all these big brands that dominated the market and controlled everything. And now... The market's growing. Yes, it is. But what's really happening is that it's being fragmented. It's being cut up by a lot of smaller brands, by local producers, by, you know, and that the younger generation that's coming up now are not brand loyal. They're much more into discovery brands. And so they want to see new things. They want to try new things. And so the bigger kind of traditional brands are losing market share and they have to become more nimble and more innovative in order to keep what they've got. And so they're running twice as hard to stay afloat. Whereas the, the smaller guys and the innovative guys are coming up and, and taking market share and even, you know, categories that aren't growing apace, like gin is not on fire, like whiskey's on fire, like whiskey's just growing and growing. Gin is not growing and growing, but what it is happening is it's just getting cut up into sm ever smaller and smaller pieces of pie and more and more brands are coming out with different points of differentiation, some specious and some real. But they're out there and they're taking, they're taking market share from the old established brands. So I think you're just going to see more and more of that premiumization and, and fracturing of the market into smaller pieces. Is there going to be a shakeout? For sure. For sure. It's hard to you know, start these small brands and these craft distilleries. And people who are undercapitalized and ill-conceived are just going to go away. But then there's going to be people who replace them. I think you know, I haven't yet. I'm always keeping my eye open for good uh, still on sale cheap figure someone's going to go out of business and I can pick one up and put it next to my cider mill and start making more apple brandy but uh haven't seen that yet but I think it'll happen I think it's definitely going to happen because you got to figure that these guys some of these guys are just going to go under you hear these stories and then you can't some of the and some of the products from these small guys are are not good I mean I've had guys come to me and say, here's my gin. I've been working really hard on it. We did 10 test batches before we decided on this recipe. I'm like, 10 test batches for gin? That's complicated stuff. It's hard to make a gin. 10 test batches, you should have done 50 more because this is not good. So it's, uh, it's complicated. And as I said, if, if the category is not growing and you're just out there to steal a little market share from established brands and other producers, and if they do a better job, then you're just done. Has it surprised you what a kind of a wild ride this has been? I mean, you, you're a waiter, you get tapped to 
to take over uh, the sales side of a distribution for spirits portfolio. And then there's dramatic growth in distribution of spirits. I mean, you look back sometimes and just go, huh, couldn't have predicted that. Yeah, all the time. That thought uh, tends to hit me, especially when I'm on a, a trip to visit one of these distilleries. You know, when I'm in Japan at a Japanese distillery, getting like the kind of tour of a facility that no one gets because you're basically there as a super VIP and your every question is answered and you're allowed to look into every nook and cranny of a place that you know a lot of whiskey aficionados would kill to get. And I go, man, <laughs> wow, pretty lucky, pretty amazing. Because you can take some of that knowledge and bring it back home for your own production. Like, because you also make cider. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example. So, like, I make cider, I'm making pomo, and I spent four days at a Calvados distillery in Normandy. I, you know, I got to, I get to go and pick the brain of the guy who's making the Calvados. I get to go and visit a, a cooperage in Jarnac and ask them, Every question you'd want to know, I get to walk around New York City with Dr. Jim Swan, peppering him with questions about barrel maturation. You know, I get to hang out and drive all over New York State with a master distiller from Westland who's got a degree from Harriet Watt and pick his brain about cuts and extraction of flavors and, you know, esterization and, you know, all these questions that, you know, I don't have a degree in that stuff, but I get those answers and I get it from people who really know what's going on. So it's like, and then I get to use that when I go and talk to people. So like people say, well, what separates this malt from that malt? I'm like, well, do you really want to know? I, I can tell you. I've been there. I've talked to the guy who makes it. I can tell you exactly what separates that malt from this malt. And it's amazing. Do you really want to know? Because I'll tell you. And so, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's like, it is, fu it is funny. It's a lot of work, this job. It means you're selling and you're out, you know, you got to travel a lot and you got to go here, go there. And there's pressure to make sure, you know, you're not, you're selling what you need to sell and but but it's also it's it's really wonderful it's it's like theater you know is it a job yes it is a job but it's it's as much play and stimulation for your imagination and your intellect and your call and your soul if you look at it right it can just be you know something that's really special even in restaurants and i had felt the same way like obviously restaurants are a lot of work but you know you get to work with fantastic people you get to learn you get to like be a part of something that's special. And if you're not, you should just leave and go and be a part of something that's special because it's out there, right? So, but I've been blessed because everywhere I've gone, whether it was at Winebow or Martin Scott or Anchor or my cider mill, you know, I'm surrounded by fantastic people who are really committed to what they're doing and feel the rewards and the challenges equally, but, you know, with a, with a heavy, heavy, heavy emphasis on what a, what a, an honor it is to kind of do what we do. Carl Duhoffman of Anchor Spirits and Orchard Hill Cider Mill. He can tell you exactly what separates one malt from another. Thank you very much for being here today. Hey, thank you. I had a lot of fun talking about this today with you. Carl Duhoffman of Anchor Spirits and Orchard Hill Cider Mill. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or 
to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.